morning. And for uh, those of you online, as uh, Joe indicated, uh, feel free to um, put some questions out there as we sort of move through what we're going to uh, talk about today. Um, some of you may know and some of you may be participants in this, what we've been calling the MEIQ um, group. And it's uh, an intentional effort to uh, equip a handful of folks in the um, congregation to help sort of lead and shepherd a um, discussion and subsequently and hopefully a transformation of the uh, culture of Central City Church so that it in fact can become more welcoming, allow more racial and ethnic diversity to um, come into and become a part of the congregation. And while that may seem like, well, duh, we certainly want that to happen and it's something that we you know, kind of set out to do, what's not understood is the way racism has impacted our society. There's a reason why the church is a predominantly white church right now and some of those things are things that um, you may not be aware of. Um, and so understanding some of the history, legacy of uh, slavery and racism and how it's shaped our society, shaped the country, all of that, and certainly how, how it's shaped the church is going to help because like anything, um, if you're doing something that you aren't aware of that's creating a problem, you have to become aware of it first so that you can begin to make the changes necessary uh, so that you're not behaving in a way that's causing a problem for people. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do. Go ahead and um, pop the PowerPoint. So um, this is a uh, training that I do and have been doing now for several years called Racism and the Church. And, um, and, and, and as the title indicates, the real objective here is what can we do about this? What can the church do? And that's always been you know, sort of the spirit in which I've uh, approached this training. I've been doing this work in particular around racism and poverty for now close to 30 years. And um, this moment that we're in in our society uh, I think creates a unique opportunity, particularly for churches like this one that are led by younger pastors, um, younger pastors who have an affinity for you know, justice work and a realization that the church needs to get more engaged in, in justice work. Uh, so it's really a, a privilege to have this opportunity to spend time with you all. And uh, so uh, the format, as we said, I'm going to speak over you know, this week, and there'll be um, a couple of weeks for you to get involved if you are interested in getting into the workbook and going through all this stuff. So um, go ahead and flip the slide for me. I want to start with this uh, poem. Uh, it's really kind of a poem slash writing. All of us are more than the worst thing we ever did. None of us are as innocent as we think we are. All of us has some prejudice we cannot justify. None of us live free from unwarranted judgment. All of us see the world as if we are at its center. None of us appreciate how connected we really are. All of us are more than our demographic designation. None of us are free from being stereotyped as one thing. All of us are more than our political affinities, and none of us are as political as we assert. All of us must accept responsibility for what America is, or none of us will see what it can become. So that came to me on or about November 9th in 2016. And if you recall what was going on around November 9th, 2016, uh, that was the night that uh, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. Let me go to the next slide. 
Um, it is that spirit that I want to try to communicate. This is the spirit behind this whole training and all of the training that I do around poverty and race issues. Um, we all have to take responsibility for what America is. And what has not happened um, historically, particularly in the church, is that people who have been a part of what we could say the class of folks who are doing the oppressing, and oppression works and, race, and racism works in different societies and different cultures with different people, but on this continent, in this country, in this American society, it's people who have been identified as white that have been the oppressors or the oppressing class in our society. And all people of color are aware of that. And most people who are in that dominant class don't, aren't necessarily connected to it, don't really have a, an understanding of the history and the legacy and in the role that they play. And I'm gonna, what I'm gonna try to do, um, for those of you who are actually signed up for this course, we're going to do deeper dives. We're going to be able to unpack things. For those of you who may not be able to do that for whatever reason, I'm going to do my best to introduce some things to you, to give you some tools to kind of process some of this. And if you're able to join each Sunday, um, you'll get a little bit more, a little bit more. But the, uh, the purpose is not to create, you know, for you to be defensive or anything like that, but just like anything else, if you're not aware of something that you're doing, those of us who are married, we all know that, like you know, particularly us men, we might do things that are problematic for our wives, and until we are aware of those things, um, there's no way for us to do anything about it. And, uh, and we all know that it's important for us to figure out or become aware of the things we're doing to, to uh, hurt our spouses or, or whatever, so that we can repent and do what we're supposed to do. All right, so I'm going to start with a scripture that everybody is familiar with. Um, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So I, I'm gonna call on you folks who are here in the sanctuary and you feel free to chime in. What's that scripture talking about? Anybody? Being judgmental. Being judgmental, okay. Anything else it might be talking about? Besides being judgmental? Okay, look at yourself before looking at others. Yeah. So generally speaking, those are kind of the two themes that we've been taught that that scripture is referring to. Um, and I want to introduce another possibility, or at least in terms of helping you understand what the purpose of this training is about. If you literally, you can flip to the next slide, if you literally looked at, like here's a graphic of this idea of having a plank in your eye. And the reality is that if you have a plank in your eye, you won't see much of anything, much less being able to do some sort of fine motor skill, taking a speck out of your brother's eye. Well, for the purposes of this training, that plank represents the biases and assumptions that we all have about life, about ourselves, about the world, and whatnot. And as I indicated earlier, if you are not aware 
of the biases and assumptions that you have that are actually problematic, that are help causing you to be a part of the perpetuation of the problem, then um, there's no way that you could be effective at trying to address it. To address it. And so the, 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 this scripture and this metaphor is what I want you to kind of wrap your mind around, particularly if this is kind of a new discussion for you. We all have biases and assumptions. They all shape the way we see the world. Next slide. And they, um, they um, affect how we live our lives and how we, how we even function as Christians in the world. And so the purpose of this training, what I've done with this for you, I've worked with other churches, I've worked with nonprofit orgs, I've worked with um, folks who are trying to do justice work so they can understand this. But the purpose is for the connected dot of the way the legacy of slavery has shaped American society and how it's shaped American society in such a way that it's socialized all of us into a set of biases and assumptions that have us thinking incorrectly about what racism is, how racism has impacted us, how racism has influenced our lives. And so what I want to do is help everyone understand that our whole entire socioeconomic system, all of our institutions have been shaped by racism and the legacy of slavery. And if that's hard for you to understand, I'll, there'll be an illustration here shortly that will kind of help you understand that. And those of you who are actually taking the course will have a chance to do a deeper dive. Your workbook, particularly if you've done the preparation, has already kind of set you up for that. Um, and then the workbook for week one will do a deeper dive into some of that. Um, but it's, it's been, our, it's, all of our institutions are shaped by that. And we have to become aware of that. We have to become aware of that plank in our eye so that it can be removed, and then we can actually get on with the business of being Christians, loving folks, dealing with the injustices that um, plague our society. Next slide. And um, I got connected to Joe and Alyssa, it's probably, what, how many years ago now? Three or four years ago, when they first started out. Um, small world kind of stuff. My wife had a program that met in the first church that they were in and Franklinton and all of that. And over the years, we've talked on and off. And then a year or so ago, you know, Joe reaches out and says, hey, we need to do something about all of this. And so this race stuff and the turmoil that we're in. And, um, and I just happened to do that in part for a living. And so uh, we connected and we decided to do this uh, with Central City Church. And so the real objective here, particularly for this congregation, is to help um, you all understand this whole issue of racism, how it's shaped not only American society, but it's shaped the way this church has evolved from its beginning. And again, this is not an attempt to, you know, it's not about judgment or getting defensive, it's just a reality. There's no way for us to be living in America and not be influenced and shaped by racism. So I want to do that. And then because this church has decided it's taking on injustice on a variety of fronts, um, when you become aware of these things, it'll allow you to actually learn, be better equipped, and be more committed in your behavior, attitude, and beliefs to actually overcome the injustices that you want to um, address. Next slide. The way um, this is sort of organized, when people are going to grow or change, it, it typically happens when they answer five questions. 
And I've always organized all the trainings that I do in order to answer those five questions. And the questions are, what is the problem? Why is it a problem? Those are speaking to awareness raising. And somebody asked them those questions, they're trying to get an understanding of what's up. Why is it my problem and what can I do about it? So once your awareness is raised and you decide you want to do something about it, you need to understand why is it my problem? How does this affect me? And then what can I do about it? And then lastly, how do I get started? And so those are the five questions that I'm going to answer each week. There's going to be four weeks, this week included, that I will attempt to answer those questions in the talk that I do on Sunday. The workbooks and the homework will, uh, and the group discussions that are part of homework will give people a chance to sort of unpack that um, a little bit more, find the ways in which it applies to what you all are doing here at uh, Central City, and then um, subsequently what you can do in your own lives and walk. Uh, as believers, if you want to take this up yourself. Next slide. So what is the problem? And you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You've heard that before. I've got a little levity to get us started. Next slide. A lot of people don't like my comedy. A lot of white people don't like my comedy. A lot of white people say this to me. Hey, I'm here. Hey get on stage, you make your jokes about white people, you say white people this, white people that. What if I did something like that, huh? What if I got on stage and I said, yeah, black people are like this, Muslims are like that. You'd probably call me a racist, wouldn't you? And I say, yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, you should, you should never do that. That's, that's bad for your health. They're like, well, you do that, Amir. You do that. You get on stage, you make your jokes about white people. Don't you think that's a kind of racism? Don't you think that's dun dun dun? <laughs> reverse racism. <laughs> I said no. I don't think that's reverse racism. Not because, not because I think reverse racism doesn't exist, right? If you ask some black and brown people, they'll tell you flat out there is no such thing as reverse racism. I don't agree with that. I think there is such a thing as reverse racism. And uh, I, could be, I could be a reverse racist if I wanted to. Uh, all I would need would be a uh, time machine, right? And uh, what I'd do is I'd get in my time machine, I'd go back in time to before Europe colonized the world, right? And uh, I'd convince the leaders of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Central and South America to uh, invade and colonize Europe, right? Just occupy them, steal their land and resources, set up some kind of like, I don't know, trans-Asian slave trade where we exported white people to work on giant rice plantations in China. Just ruin Europe over the course of a couple of centuries so all their descendants would want to migrate out and live in the places where black and brown people come from. But of course, in that time, I'd make sure I set up systems that privilege black and brown people at every conceivable social, political, and economic opportunity. And white people would never have any hope of real self-determination. Just every couple of decades make up some fake war as an excuse to go and bomb them back to the Stone Age and say it's for their own good because their culture is inferior and just for kicks subject white people to colored people's standards of beauty so they end up hating the color of their own skin, eyes and hair. If after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of that I got on stage at a comedy show and said, hey, what's the deal with white people? 
why can't they dance? <laughs> that would be reverse racism. <laughs> Go ahead and slip to the next slide. So, um, obviously, a um, little bit of humor there, but very much truth. And if you've done any study of history, you kind of can see how that plays out. And I want to introduce you to something that some of you may be aware of, but maybe not. Um, we all know Christopher Columbus, 1492, discovered America, all of that, that myth, if you will. Um, but all of that was going on. There was something that happened that actually set in motion what became this version of racism and led to the type of the slavery that ended up ultimately shaping the way American society was developed. That happened back in that time. And Pope Alexander VI, what, what was happening at that time is all the European countries started with Portugal and then Spain and England. They're all racing around the world um, discovering lands and laying claim to these lands as sovereigns over that land. And the doctrine of discovery is what not only architected the thinking around that, but it was what um, the Pope um, had put out to sort of give legal authority, if you will, and I use legal in quotes, for them to get to a land, plant their flag, and declare sovereignty over that land, its resources, and the people. So they started off assuming they were superior to everyone that they would encounter and that they had a divine right to take the control of that land, those resources, and those people. So race as we understand it today did not exist then, but this idea of European supremacy had already been firmly established in their thinking, and they had the power through weaponry and technology to be able to go around the world, leverage that power, and to begin to subdue the people in the lands that they encountered. So all the stories that we've been told about, you know, how Christopher Columbus came and then how the pilgrims came somewhat later, all of that, those folks, we've been told a lot of stories, and, and, um, and I don't want to just dismiss offhand that some of that wasn't true, but it's important to understand that underneath in their biases and assumptions, in their worldview, they came to these places, they came to this continent with a sense of superiority over the people that they encountered. And it wasn't like these folks didn't have culture, didn't have religion, didn't have um, intricate and, and com complex societies. But in order for you to subjugate someone, you have to have some assumptions that somehow they're less than, that they weren't, they didn't have a complex society, that they were somehow savages. They were somehow not sophisticated enough. And by comparison to themselves, Europeans, they could say that these people are inferior. They didn't wear the same kind of clothes. They didn't eat the same kind of food. They didn't do the same kinds of things that we did. So therefore, they were inferior. And there's just tons of documentation. If you read the memoir of Christopher Columbus and what he said about the natives that he encountered um, when he came to, um, to the Americas, you, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, because we have this you know, sort of sanitized version of that, all right? So that's an important thing to appreciate. So it all started back then, way back then. All right, next slide. Now fast forward 
to slavery in America and its legacy. So prior to slavery as an institution as we understand it now, um, there was something called indentured servitude. And you may have heard that term before. And among the things that happened is people could come over, um, like they, anybody could have come from Europe and, um, and worked off you know, some debt or something, and they could actually work for these corporations um, that were there to exploit the land and its resources. Don't get that twisted. I mean, European was colonizing the world, not just because they were spreading Christianity or whatever else you might have thought. They were looking for material that they could, you know, own and that they could sell, that they could exploit, that, that you know, that whole consumerism thing. That's what they were doing. So these indentured servers can come over and work whatever. And some of them worked in, in cotton wasn't a um, crop at that time, one of the dominant crops. But, you know, they could do that kind of stuff. They could do other kinds of labor work or whatever. And people were doing that. Of course, they put the natives that they encountered into that, and, you know, into those things, too. And the natives could have been indentured service for a period of time. Then they began to bring Africans over in mass to do that work. And for a variety of reasons, the Africans stood out from the other folks who were involved, particularly the Europeans and some of the natives that were involved. And they did have a somewhat unique characteristics in terms of strength and endurance and some other things that some of the Europeans did not. Uh, but it didn't take long. You know, they weren't slaves initially when they first came here. And, and you know, you've heard about the 1619 Project, and I'm, I'm not going to debate about the veracity of that. But that is the date in which the first enslaved Africans came to this continent. But it, slavery didn't start then um, in the way that we came to understand it. It was uh, over that next hundred years or so is when it got codified in a way that we understand it. And... Um, so they began to, to do that, and then there was something called Bacon's Rebellion, um, because all the, it was a whole bunch of people who were uh, um, indentured servants, or were working, and supposed to be working off debt, or working to gain freedom, and to get land, and all of that, but the owner class was not treating them right. And so uh, Bacon's Rebellion um, it was, a, it was a diverse group of people, who stood up and said, hey, you're not treating us right. And so they rebelled and they wanted to be treated fairly. They wanted to, to actually get what they were promised. And, um, and so that rebellion was the beginning of what we call whiteness in our society. Because what they did was they divided up the way they put, meted out the punishment. And the Europeans maybe got put in jail, got sanctioned, or did something, and they got extra years added to their um, servitude or something like that. Some of the uh, natives, same thing, a little bit longer, whatever. But the Africans, who were now a part of that, they declared that they would remain enslaved in perpetuity. Not only them, but their children in perpetuity. And you can, and we'll talk about that for those of you who are doing the, um, the uh, workbook and going through the training. I'll introduce you to some of that, and there's a resource guide where you can hear some about some of that. But there, these laws began to get codified right after Bacon's Rebellion. And the way 
Africans became enslaved on American continent, and then subsequent to that, the cotton and all of that, and I won't, um, I won't bore you with all that in this moment, but all of that stuff got constructed over that period of time, and that began the slavery as we know it, it began to define racism as we know it, and it began to define whiteness as we know it. Next slide. So here's a uh, illustration. You might need to keep, yeah, clicking. You just, we'll see what happens as we go, okay. So um, in slavery, I've referenced this before, but um, oppression works every, I mean, there's a dynamic of oppression. Uh, go back, I'm sorry. Go back to that previous slide, um, if you can. No worries. But oppression works, um, there's a dynamic of oppression in every cultural context around the world throughout a history. And if you just, you know, it's, a, it, it does, it's not always about skin color, sometimes it's about ethnicity, sometimes about religion. Um, there's a lot of different things the way oppression works out. Some group has the power in that particular societal context. They can leverage that power in such a way that they perpetrate a false sense of superiority in themselves and then a false sense of inferiority in the people whom they are oppressing. So you can just think about it. There's one that's connected to our history as Christians that ought to be very obvious. Can you think of the one that, that falls into that category? Anybody? Some guy named Moses? You know, that was the Hebrews, 400 years under the Egyptian oppression. That dynamic works. Egyptians had the power a sense of superiority, false sense of inferiority, and the Hebrews that were being oppressed, right? Side note, it's one of the reasons that African-American folks tend to connect to the gospel through the Exodus and Moses, because at the time they, Christianity was introduced to them, they were being oppressed by the white folks in this society. And so that's how they connect to the gospel. And um, that's how I was introduced to the gospel, in fact. All right, so, so that's it, so now next slide. So let me give you this graphic as a visual, and then we'll just try to um, you know, kind of paint this picture for you a little bit more fully. So you're thinking 1619, fast forward. So it's about 400 years from the time that the first enslaved African set foot on this continent to now. Then we had slavery, that eventually became legalized for 246 years. So for 246 years, it was legal to um, disenfranchise people because of the color of their skin. We had the Emancipation Proclamation, Abraham Lincoln, and he was assassinated for that, by the way. And you know why John Booth assassinated him? He said, if what he decided to do means that the N-word is going to have equality or freedom with the white man, that'll be the last thing he ever does. Booth was a devout racist and murdered Abraham Lincoln because he wanted to emancipate and give um, rights to the slaves. Keep clicking. So that happens. Emancipation Proclamation. And then we have Reconstruction, which really didn't turn into anything. The Reconstruction Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, were supposed to give rights to everyone, 
But that didn't last more than a decade before the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and, and other sorts of white supremacist organizations. And then we started what's called Jim Crow segregation. And again, those of us in this room, um, I don't know who's old as I am, but the civil rights era, 64 and 65 civil rights voting rights, put an end to Jim Crow segregation legally, right? I was born in 1960. That means in my lifetime that it was still legal to disenfranchise people of color in this country, not just in the South, but in the North as well. Deny access to services, deny opportunity to vote, deny um, you know, sitting in this place or getting that thing or going to this school or doing all of that stuff. That was still legal in my lifetime. Keep clicking. So basically you have 345 years of the, the institutions, educational, political, economic, church, all of our institutions were bathing in these biases and assumptions about race, people, and, and, um, and, and it's shaping the way people saw the world. In another uh, section of this a couple weeks from now, maybe next time I speak, um, I'll talk specifically about how all this has shaped the church. But now you can go ahead and click the next slide. So here is a uh, illustration I use a lot in all the training I do. Everybody kind of familiar with this, right? The um, iceberg um, illustration. So what do we know about icebergs at first glance? Most of it's below the surface. So look at um, what I just introduced to you. So Europeans colonization, doctrine of discovery, enslavement of Africans, Jim Crow segregation, all of that stuff underneath the surface. And then we come along, racial and ethnic minorities, American society, and the way the world behaves, responds, and reacts, that tip of the iceberg. I use that illustration very intentionally because it didn't go well for the Titanic when it encountered the iceberg. Didn't go well. And I want you to be, um, to have that image in your mind. Because that metaphor explains a lot. And, and, and it's important that you appreciate how grave this is. We have not understood the way racism has shaped this society. We have not understood how much it has shaped the way we see the world. And we, it's kind of benign now. We think it's kind of benign. Or we think, oh, well, you know, I got friends. I, you know, we don't, I go to church with some black folks or I do that. I mean, we, we kind of have a more Pollyannish view of it now, but that's what's real. This, you know, underneath the ice, the stuff underneath that we don't see is still influencing to this day, you. It is among the reasons why this church is a predominantly white congregation. Not because you wanted it to be, but because of all the other forces that have shaped the way you decide, shaped what you decide is good, shaped where you decided to live, shaped where you decided to go to school, how you work, how you spend your money. All of those things underneath the surface are what you have to become aware of and understand why it is the way it is yet to this day. Next slide. So what I want you to do, and for those of you who are in the, 
the, um, taking the course. I want you to just um, take a moment and um, jot some notes down to two minute reflection. I introduced something that was kind of chewy, legacy of slavery, gave you a couple of illustrations. Just take a moment and kind of think about that for a moment and um, react to it. Um, and I'll, um, I'll let you all do that for just a second. And if you all who are not taking the course want to do that as well, you're welcome to. But I'd like you to just kind of think about that. I know live streaming doesn't like dead time, but that's okay. What? Oh, there's a little delay? Okay. All right. Go ahead, next slide. So the term hegemony. I referenced earlier that this whole oppression thing is not unique to black and white people in the American cultural context. And you know, so when I talk about the dynamics of oppression and the way oppression works, the, t the sort of technical term, if you will, is hegemony. And so I want to unpack hegemony and sort of connect the dots. So go ahead, next slide. <clears throat> so hegemony in the American culture. So hegemony, it can be defined, is a preponderant or superior oppressive influence or authority over others. The social, political, and economic, and cultural or ideological influence exerted by a dominant group. So just think about that. So that's hegemony, that's the term. And we can think about the context where that plays out. Um, you're gonna get an illustration about men and women here uh, in just a second. Next slide. In America, the dominant group that had the political, economic, and ideological influence over, the, over our society were the European men who established our country. Right? So, so the, 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 when they declared independence from Europe, wrote the Constitution, did all of that, they had the power, they crafted everything, they designed the laws and the policies and things to leverage their power and control. So it was European men, um, subsequently known as white men, who had that power. So the hegemon was European white men that launched this society in the way that we've come to understand it today. They established our socioeconomic system and all the ways that we kind of come to understand that. So here are three questions. When did America declare its independence from England? Somebody shout it out. 1776, all right. When did women get the right to vote in America? Anybody know? 1920. And how did women get the right to vote? What? They fought for it. They fought for it? OK. Any other ideas? They certainly did fight for it. What? The 19th Amendment? 19th Amendment? Yeah. Convince their husbands? Remember who the hegemon is? Remember who the hegemon 
is, go ahead, next, click it. Men had to give it to them. Men had to give women the right to vote. Now think about that. So who had the power in this context? And to this day, all of our political leaders, we just had a point where we had the most women elected to public office in the history of our country. That just happened in the last round of elections, first time. We were talking about the first woman to be a part of you know, Congress or whatever you know, in our lifetimes, you know, for sure. So it's important to, to kind of understand the way hegemony works. And it doesn't matter, the laws have already been established. The policies and procedures have already been established. And so it'd be like this, here's, a, here's an illustration. If I have a car that's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not firing properly, it needs a tune-up, it's got, you know, bad brakes, um, it's leaking oil, that car needs some repair. Now, does it matter who's driving it? It doesn't matter whether it's a white person driving it, doesn't matter whether it's a woman driving it, doesn't matter whether it's a black person driving it. The car itself is the issue. Doesn't matter where the white person wants to go or the colored person wants to go or the you know, native person wants to go, doesn't matter where they want to go, the car is the issue. Doesn't matter that we don't harbor animus against other people you know, explicitly. Doesn't matter the way society works the way our systems work, have already been set in motion by the hegemon. Those folks set this society up so that they would leverage power, maintain power and control. And it's important to understand that. Next slide. So, think about now racism and the way it's been perpetuated. In the, one of the, one of the um, reconstruction amendments was supposed to give people equal protection under the law. It was supposed to give people um, the right to vote. It was supposed to give people um, access to all the things that Amer the American dream, if you will, in 1864, 65. And here we are. That's Elizabeth Eckford. That's the, one of the Little Rock Nine. This is a woman trying to, they, they're integrating a school for the first time, and look at what's going on. And what's important to understand is it's, it's what people do that has the impact on folks. It's what you do, whether you do it in ignorance or whether you do it with malice and intent. Something you do and say impacts people in a negative way. Next slide. Give me a sense of time. I just want to make sure. I'm sorry. So how much time? Got about five more minutes? Okay, gotcha. All right, so go ahead and skip through. Go ahead and skip this one. So I'm gonna connect this last dot. Go ahead, keep, go ahead, go through. You can go ahead and skip. We knew this would be kind of jumbled um, and trying to do it this way. Go ahead and go ahead and, I'm gonna go ahead and skip through. 
So I want to connect this dot and I guess in closing and then I can open up for some questions if people have something. So remember, I'm talking about the hegemon. I'm talking about the people who have control, the dominant culture. And so this is how it connects to whiteness. The group of people who, had, who is in charge of America are all identified as white, in particular white men. So what, what has to be understood is that while whiteness is a social construct, there is no such thing as white land. There is no such as black land. People come from places. People have ethnic heritages. People come from different places on the planet. These two terms, both black and white, are constructions social constructions, but they've been imbued not only with meaning, but they've been imbued with power. Whiteness in particular in this cultural context has been imbued with power. Click the slide. And I'm gonna stop here. And whiteness is part of, um, that's how that kind of evolved. So I often ask a question, and this is for folks who may not go through the rest of the class. Um, do you identify as white or are you identified as white? Do you identify as white or are you identified as white? Just think about that. And for the sake of unpacking that definition a little bit more, um, we, will, we will revisit that in some of the um, other discussion that we have. So I'm going to leave you all with that this Sunday. And, um, and we've got a little time if there are some questions or if somebody even here in the um, sanctuary this morning have a question or a thought they want to put out there, feel free. No pressure. It's a lot particularly if you haven't already gotten involved in these conversations. I know this is a lot. Anything from the online folks? Yeah, they wanted to know if the, there was PDF uh, somewhere. Oh, yeah. I told them that they could sign up for the class. Yep. Yep. You mentioned the 1619 project. Yeah. What is, do you have any small unpackings of that? Do you, would you approve of it in general? Oh, yeah, yeah. What's unfortunate, like everything, things get politicized. There's a reason why things get politicized, because there are folks trying to get power and keep power and all of that. Most of the way it's was, in which it's been characterized has been incorrect. And uh, it's actually a, a, a great resource. And it talks and it, it does nothing that people who are crit criticizing it says it does. But it is a great resource because it goes through the various areas of American society, entertainment, music, health, care, politics, and just sort of shows what I've just tried to do with you all in 20 minutes or so, how racism has influenced those areas and how those dots connect. And that's all it does. Um, and, and unfortunately, it got co-opted for the political purposes. Yeah. Um, so Charlie Kavanda, who's in the NEIQ, she's online. How should Christians think about racism differently, and why should this be our problem? We talked about this in our small group. Yeah. So um, because of who we serve and what we're supposed to be about on the planet. And one of the things that, that I think because of racism and the way theology was shaped by racism is that what it, you know, Jesus came to the marginalized. And he preached to the people who were marginalized first. 
challenge the people who are in power, the people who got the, um, you know, the, 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 the harsh, you know, whatever's from Jesus were the folks who were in power doing the oppressing, the, the Romans and the religious leaders of the day. But the thing that we're called to most foremost is we have to, we're called to um, work to liberate the oppressed. And some of these things that we are discovering in this training is that the church has been complicit in the oppression of folks, people of color in particular in this society, and our society functions in such a way that the poor, and, and in particular people of color who are poor, get disenfranchised by design, and the church has been complicit because it's been unaware. And so what the church has to do is become aware of how it has been complicit in the perpetuation of poverty and racism in our society, and then take up its really, you know, the mandate it was really called to, is to work, bring the gospel in such a way that it helps to liberate people from that oppression. It does no good. I mean, I know this is a, you know, I don't know how people think theologically, but one of the reasons why there's um, a different approach that black churches tend to bring to, um, to preaching the gospel is because it's not about just some sort of, I'm gonna get saved individual, make sure that I'm good so that I can go to heaven. It's about recognizing <laughs> that our lives should be transformed in some way and should, we should be working to eliminate, you know, to alleviate the oppression, to interrupt the way oppression works, to liberate people, not just so they can go to heaven when they die if they accept Christ, but that they can have a life here. They can actually have a quality education. They can live in quality house. They can get a good job. They don't have to live oppressed. And the church can be very much a part of that. And that's sort of the historic legacy of a lot of black churches that have kind of drifted away from. But that's never been the legacy of most white churches because of the way racism has shaped the theology of the gospel. Okay. Well, um, I, I want to say this in terms of the logistics of all of this and everything. I mean, we knew that this would be a little different and um, as you can see, I am uh, I'm used to just kind of teaching training a bit. But um, if you, uh, I don't know how Joe preaches, but um, I think he probably preaches that way too. But um, you know, I can I can do a little preaching too if uh, at some point you want me to do that. So so I'll, I'll, I'll maybe I'll work that in uh, <laughs> one of the times that I um, I speak again. All right. Well, thank you all. Appreciate it. We'll see you anyway in a couple weeks. Me again, and um, again sign up for the for the uh, class if you want online. Yeah, if you go to centralcity.co slash news, you can see the sign up there. It'll add you to a group. You can download the Church Center app, or you can go directly to the website, uh, centralcity.churchcenter.com. And uh, the groups, uh, if you, once you're added to the Racism and Church group, there's basically three tabs in that group. There's events, and it'll show you when the next uh, speaking as well as when the next discussion group is. There's a resources tab. That's where all of the links to – there's some videos – there's workbooks. It's all in the resources tab. And then there's a tab where you can see who the members are of that group as well, based on what, uh, and, and even their contact information if they've released that information in, in the group. So if you uh, want to connect with other people in the group. So that's how that works. And sign up ends tonight. And the sign up ends uh, today. Today. Exactly. Today. Yeah. So tonight. Yeah. Um, so we kept it 
we're going to keep it open in case you, once you heard Robert, you're like, okay, I actually do want to jump in on this and get some of the additional content. Um, we, we did that. Um, uh, but, but afterwards, we're really looking for people who are going to be in the, do the workbooks and discussion through the entire four sessions uh, and not jump halfway through um, after missing the first two or whatever. So uh, sign up for the group and join the group is going to end tonight. So uh, will you guys thank Robert for coming and sharing? I, I just think it's really going to be really good in, online. In about 30 seconds, they'll be clapping online, so that'll be fun. And uh, <laughs> uh, I appreciate it, Robert. And I think it's, uh, I, I really felt like it's just a good thing. I feel really good. You know, I wish COVID was such that we could have enjoyed it more together in person, but I'm so glad to see so many of our families interacting online. There were actually a few more questions once you sat down, I saw, so I'll share those with you yeah. and we can address them in the future. So thanks, thanks, do that um, uh, if you're online. And with that, I'm just gonna, uh, 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 Pray over us and we'll be done for the day. So God, we give you thanks. We ask that you would go with us, that you would allow these words that we've heard to shape and uh, challenge us and that your Holy Spirit would continue to guide us through the learning process. In your name we pray, amen. Next week, we'll be kicking off a new series here at Central City Church. And then in uh, three Sundays or two weeks, uh, uh, we'll do two weeks of, of, a, of a new series. And then in the third, that third week, Robert will be back. Um, one other piece of announcement, we typically do community Sundays, the first Sunday of the month. Um, but because of COVID cases, we're not. So we'll just be doing normal church uh, sermon, you know, city kids, that sort of thing, so that for those who are joining online uh, can uh, have something that week, and uh, we're not encouraging a bunch of people taking their masks off, eating something. Usually community Sundays involve food. So in February, we're going to take that off, and we'll see where we're at in March in regards to the COVID cases. So you guys have a great week. Hopefully we'll see you next week.